This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of November 28, 2022, here are some top stories. By a 2-0 vote, supervisors in a small, rural Republican-leaning Arizona county have finally voted to certify the 2022 election results. Ben Giles reports. The Cochise County Board of Supervisors had for weeks delayed the typically mundane administerial task of canvassing the election. But on Thursday afternoon, a judge ordered them to immediately hold an emergency meeting and certify the election results. The judge determined that the supervisors had no discretion in the matter. The law requires them to approve the canvas of the roughly 47,000 votes cast in Cochise County. Republican Supervisor Peggy Judd and Democratic Supervisor Ann English followed the judge's order and voted to certify. Republican Supervisor Tom Crosby skipped the meeting. A statewide canvas of results from all 15 counties is scheduled for Monday. Ben Giles, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And here's the first story from the series Unsafe. On New Year's Eve 2018, news broke that a woman with profound physical and intellectual disabilities gave birth at a Phoenix institution called Hacienda Healthcare. Phoenix police now investigating a possible case of sexual assault. This after a woman in a vegetative state, unable to move or even speak, gave birth. Hacienda Healthcare, where a 29-year-old patient described as living in a vegetative state for years delivers a baby. So many questions still unanswered. An employee was arrested. He's now in prison. This incident led to widespread calls for reform of Arizona institutions. But the reality is that there are fewer than 200 people in the state living in such facilities. 45,000 residents with intellectual and developmental disabilities live in the community, on their own, with family, or in small group home settings. And abuse takes place there as well. This five-part series, Unsafe, investigates the physical and sexual abuse of people with intellectual disabilities. Amy Silverman speaks to the mother of the woman who gave birth at Hacienda. She's telling her story for the first time. On a warm fall day, Mildred sits in the conference room of her lawyer's North Phoenix office. We're using her first name only to protect her privacy. She wears a blue t-shirt and jeans, her salt and pepper hair held back by a sparkly headband. Mildred never thought her daughter would be a mother, and then she got a call from an employee at Hacienda. Oh, Mildred, I just want to let you know, did you know you're a grandma? I said, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, she had a baby boy, and I threw my phone across the room. Mildred's eyes fill with tears as she talks about her daughter, the fourth of seven children. She had her first seizure when she was just two weeks old. Mildred knew something was wrong, but she didn't know what to call it. I would be taking her to her appointments and try to explain to the doctors, nurses, that what she was doing, turning blue, shaking, her eyes rolling up. Mildred and her family are members of the San Carlos Apache Indian community. They live hours from any big health care facility. Eventually, the family was sent to Phoenix, where the little girl had a seizure in front of a doctor, who was then able to diagnose her. I kept her home as long as I could, but then she started developing respiratory problems. The doctors convinced Mildred and her husband to put the girl in a state-funded care facility in Phoenix called Hacienda Healthcare. She was just two years old. Hardest day of my life to let her 
to let her stay. I was reassured that she'll be taken care of. They'll care for her. And I did say that to them, you know. I cared for her as much as I could at home. So now, you take care of her. Mildred was happy with her daughter's care. She kept a close eye on her when she visited, checking for sores, bruises, even earwax. She sang songs to her in Apache. She and her husband requested that their daughter never be left alone with a male caregiver. When the family visited on Christmas Eve in 2018, Mildred noticed her 29-year-old daughter's feet were swollen. She mentioned it to staff and followed up. I called the next day. Oh, she's scheduled to see a doctor. And that was it. I never got a call back saying why her feet were swollen until the 29th. The 29th. That's the day Mildred got that phone call. The one telling her she was a grandmother. I threw my phone across the room. Mildred rushed to Phoenix to see her daughter. At first, Mildred wasn't sure she even wanted to see the infant. She prayed about it, then went to the ICU where the baby was being weaned off his mother's seizure medications. He was just laying there all small, facing the other way. We just saw the back of his head. And we saw him, talked to him in Apache, apologized to him how he came, but told him that he's ours. And I said, he's going home with us. He's mine. This is my flesh and blood. No matter how he came, he's my flesh and blood. Mildred pulls out her phone to show photos of a beautiful, healthy child with big eyes and dark hair. He loves spicy food. He's always surrounded by family. He calls all of us mama, me, my, my older daughter, the aunties. From his youngest days, Mildred has brought the boy to visit his mother, who now lives in another care facility in Phoenix. He calls her mama, too. Mildred worries about the day her grandson finds out about his father and the circumstances of his birth. Mm -hmm. Every day, every morning, every time I look at him. I'm Amy Silverman for KJZZ. And the series is supported by the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism. You can find the entire series on our website, kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In business news, Tempe's mayor says the Coyotes' plan would be the best arena deal in Arizona history. Here's Mark Brody. Tempe voters will have the final say on a new entertainment district in the city, including an arena for the Arizona Coyotes. The Tempe City Council last night approved the team's plan for the more than $2 billion development and sending it to the ballot next spring. The proposal has raised the ire of some residents, as well as some Phoenix officials who worry about the potential impacts of the new buildings on Sky Harbor Airport. Tempe Mayor Corey Woods joined his council colleagues in voting to support sending the question to the ballot, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Mayor Woods, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing all right. So why to you is this the, the right thing to do? So from my perspective, this really, when you look at all of the different deal points uh, and what the council and our staff uh, were able to negotiate, I believe has the makings of the best sports stadium slash arena deal in the history of the state of Arizona. Uh, you're talking about a $2.1 billion project, which is going to be privately financed. Uh, every other arena in the state of Arizona 
uh, will not pay property taxes, frankly, in perpetuity. Uh, when people talk about the, the tax abatement on this facility, we're talking about 30 years for the arena and the practice facility and eight years for the other pieces, the multifamily residential, as well as the hotels. Uh, so frankly, you're talking about a deal that's going to, that once it comes back on the tax rolls is going to be uh, tremendously improved land that's going to provide much needed tax revenues uh, to our city, to our school districts, and I think it's going to be tremendous for our community. The other thing I'm thinking as well is that when you talk about bringing in a professional sports franchise from one of the four major sports, you're talking about putting a lot of not only national, but international eyes on the city of Tempe. We are already the hotbed for Class A office uh, in the entire valley. We have Arizona State University, the most innovative university in the country, eight years and running. And we are a tremendous uh, community for a lot of other uh, things and amenities. And quite honestly, I think this is just another feather in the cap of the city of Tempe uh, when it comes to uh, diversifying some of our existing assets and bringing in a component that we don't already have that are going to bring even more eyes onto what this community is already doing. So I think when people begin to look at the actual particulars of the deal, I think they're going to be very supportive of what we've been able to negotiate. Well, so let me ask you about, you mentioned that much of this would be privately financed. And I'm curious if what happened with the Coyotes in Glendale gives you any pause, because they did have an issue with uh, some unpaid and back taxes. Uh, the, the situation with the city clearly deteriorated to the point where the city didn't want them anymore. And, you know, there have been some financial firms that have not given the Coyotes the, the world's greatest uh, world's greatest financial ratings. So I've been up here as an elected official in Tempe for nearly 10 and a half years, eight years as a council member and nearly two and a half as mayor. I can tell you in the entire time I've sat here as a member of this governing body, this council and staff has never done more research on a project. The reality is when someone is maybe building an apartment complex, you have to more or less look at site plans and building construction and things of that nature, because it's probably only a two-year relationship until the company builds it. We understand that when you're talking about a professional sports franchise, we're talking about a 30-year relationship. I would be 73 years old at the end of that relationship. Uh, so the reality is we understood that we're talking about three decades of a commitment to a team. So we uh, hired people to do an outside financial analysis. We have a great team of people internally that conducted their own kind of rigorous financial analysis. And we looked at everything from the uh, potential traffic impacts to the public benefits analysis, to what this could do from an economic development standpoint, along with all of the financials. And after doing an exhaustive amount of research and over six months of negotiating, I think we've arrived at what is a very good deal for our residents and our taxpayers. So, Mayor, I'm curious why the council decided and, and you decided along with them. Why put this to a public vote as opposed to just having the council say yay or nay on this project? So one of the things that we were clearly thinking of, there were a lot of people, including the Arizona Coyotes, but also other citizen groups uh, that were coming forward and talking about wanting to put this out for referendum. And as a matter of fact, we talked to people who were on the pro side. I talked to residents and business owners who were very much in support of this development, who thought it should go to a public vote. But I also talked to people on the other side who weren't supportive of it and thinks and thought that we shouldn't be doing a deal with the Coyotes, who also wanted it to go to a public vote. Many times those were the people who actually had the strongest voices who would say, you know, Corey and members of the city council, if you think this is a good project, 
give the people of this community an opportunity to cast a public vote. And that's precisely what we did. On November 10th, we took a unanimous vote as a council to talk to Maricopa County Elections about reserving uh, May 16th, 2023 as a date when we could have a public referendum on this project. We have all of our city elections in March and May, so that's also the timeline that our voters are used to voting uh, on municipal issues. We also recognize that people would get their ballots in early to mid-April, which means that people would still be here, kids would still be in school, and families would still be around so they could actively engage with the process uh, and have the ability to actually to cast a vote. And, and when we know now, we've already released over 200 pages of the development and disposition agreement that was approved last night. Hmm. So residents are going to have over five months to take a look at what's actually been negotiated and frankly make up their own minds about what they think about this deal. If people take a look at it over the next few months and think it's a good deal for the city of Tempe, and it really would add an element that we don't already have in our community and continue to enhance what Tempe is all about, then they should vote for it. If they look at it over the next five, six months and they don't like the deal, then they're also free to vote no. But what I heard from people on both sides of the fence on this was, given how big of a deal this is, a, a minimum of a $2.1 billion project, and the fact that every other arena deal in the state of Arizona has had some element of a public vote attached to it, we feel it would be appropriate to have a public vote. And that's exactly what the council chose to do. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Tempe Mayor Corey Woods. Mayor Woods, thanks for your time as always. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. From Catholic to Mormon, why Latinos are joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here's the show co-host, Lauren Gilger. Traditionally, Latinos have been associated with Catholicism. But for the past several decades, there's been a trend of Latinos and lots of other people leaving the Catholic Church. Some become evangelical, some leave religion altogether, and others join a religion that looks very different from the Catholic Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. ASU professor Suhey Vega researches this phenomenon, and I spoke with her more about it, as well as how it intersects with her personal experience as a lapsed Latina Catholic. I, I was born in the United States. Both of my parents were Catholic or are Catholic, and they both came from a region in Mexico, Michoacan, um, Samora specifically, that is very, very Catholic. And as such, then I was raised Catholic. I would visit home my Mexican home, often uh, see my grandmother. And so for me, Catholicism brings back memories of her, of my grandmother, of her singing next to me and her, her voice cracking, but still very much a part of the hymns and her praying and my mother as well. And during Day of the Dead, even though I no longer am a practicing Catholic, I, I teach my family. I change it up a little bit, but I do a Day of the Dead prayer mm. that kind of celebrates a little bit of my heritage. Yeah. So let's talk about your leaving the church and why you did. I mean, this was something it sounds like you did relatively young and after being, you know, raised in the, in this in this very culturally steeped version of the religion. Yeah, and it's interesting because I I remember in high school I would go to a mass uh, at a Catholic service that was just really inspirational. I loved it. I would have never imagined if I went back in time and told my high school self that I would not be Catholic anymore, I think that she would find that hard to believe. Mm. Um, and in part, I loved it because our parish priest was just so engaging. And he was what I would call today a feminist priest. 
uh, because he always included women instead of us men. It was always us people. And so I loved it. Then I went to college and I went to a different parish, one that was close to my college campus. And that priest was not as engaging. He was very much old school, yelling at the congregation rather than engaging them. Mm. I just, I, I felt I fell out of love. And I started seeing other aspects of the faith that I was not comfortable with. Mm. Um, it, it was slow, but it, but it definitely, um, I stopped going to mass and I was okay with that. Like there wasn't like a light bolt of lightning didn't come down on me. <laughs> um, and I still believe certain parts of it, you know, but I also see a problem with the faith. Yeah. So to your own surprise, it sounds like you are now a researcher in this, a professor in this. You study religion. You study Latinos in particular who have left the Catholic Church. Um, and in particular, you study those who have left for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is very interesting. First of all, though, tell us how how you got into that realm. How did you go from, you know, leaving this faith to deciding you wanted to study it in some ways? I was understanding or trying to understand the way that Latino immigrants, Mexican immigrants in particular, kind of negotiate home, create spaces of belonging. And I couldn't help but be in spaces of religious rituals, um, masses, events, processions mm -hmm. that reminded me of my grandmother, reminded me of my mom, but also reminded me of how important religion is to Latino populations. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of came to me that I had to stop ignoring it and, and really kind of um, lean into the role of faith in people's lives, even if I no longer was a practicing Catholic. So yeah. you've also sort of dived into this realm of, of Latinos leaving for the LDS church, as I said. First of all, how common is this? Like, what do we know about the numbers? Is there any way to measure this? It's very really hard to measure it because the church itself, the LDS church, does not keep demographic information like this. But we can just see from the activity in Latin America, the activity of Spanish-speaking missions in the United States, that definitely the, the numbers are growing or have been growing for at least two decades. It is definitely one of the populations that demonstrates the largest growth in the LDS church. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when I think about the Catholic church versus the LDS church? I mean, theologically, first of all, just very, very different. What do people tell you about why it is they have left and why for Mormonism? So I think a dominant answer to that question that I've gotten is that they never felt really connected, I mean, similar to me, to the parish, the priest. They felt like they were just kind of sitting and asked to absorb the religion rather than asked to contribute. To the religion. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times people answered that question with, you know, I just wasn't feeling it anymore in the Catholic Church. And I, I would I would go to Mass every Sunday like I was supposed to. I would sit there and just listen to the priest preach, but I wasn't connecting. And I, I felt like I wanted to say something, but I wasn't allowed. And so for them, then the opportunity to have, in this case, Spanish-speaking missionaries, often white Spanish-speaking missionaries mm -hmm. who would come to their door, knock, and engage them in a way that respected a their language and b wanted them to learn the faith read the faith and be able to talk about it yeah. uh, 
And that was something that they did not get in, in Catholic experiences. The Book of Mormon itself has the Americas and specifically Latin Americans and Native Americans as a central part of their faith yeah. um, of the Book of Mormon. So uh, I think a lot of them connected that way, too. But at the same time, when you look at the Mormon texts, right, like, you know, isn't Jesus described as light skinned? You've got a lot of imagery of, you know, a light skinned Jesus converting native populations in Latin and Central America. Do those things come up when you talk to people about this? Not necessarily. And I think that speaks to a, a more complicated vision of race in Latin America. And mm. so while Latin America has what we call mestizaje or the intermixing of different groups and has had it, you know, since colonization, there is still and always has been a attraction to European features, right? Mm. To be white or white passing is still seen as an ideal. We can see this in TV and news reporters and novelas. And all of that comes from a horrible racist kind of undertone of colonization that is still coming to the surface today. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues and problems in the Book of Mormon, especially with a light skinned Jesus that is completely inaccurate. Mm -hmm. But then also with the notion that as they grow in the faith, their skin will lighten, right? That's, huh. that's in the Book of Mormon. And they will, quote unquote, blossom as the rose. But I think a lot of them because of that dominant undertone in Latin America, that wasn't necessarily a concern for some of them. Hmm. So you talk about those concerns, those those maybe problematic things in your research of this, but also that you have had very, it seems very authentic, very true experiences with people who have converted to Mormonism, who, you know, remake this faith in their own image and who are incredibly fulfilled in their spiritual lives. Tell us about them. Yeah. So one of the things that being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints offers that often isn't a possibility in Catholicism is lay leadership, right? You can have wards, what they call like congregations, mm -hmm. with a Latino or Hispanic priest who is a bishop, uh, a leader for the congregation. But then there's multiple leadership uh, roles within that, some even for women. And so the, the opportunity to not just sit back and listen to a mass, but actually engage and take on leadership roles means a lot of them do have a more fulfilling relationship with their faith than perhaps Catholicism. Is there a, a political intersection with this in your research? So I research Arizona and I've also included work in Utah. Uh, both states are rather conservative and both states have LDS politicians that often rally and utilize their connections in the church to to gain support. Mm -hmm. With Arizona specifically, I know that I was looking at specifically one of the first to to engage SB 1070 because Russell Pierce was and is LDS, mm -hmm. right? And I wanted to understand how does the church, how do the congregates, the members of the church respond to this very political moment that for some, they supported it, and for others, they were really afraid, and it was a terrifying time here in Arizona. I heard from folks that said that, you know, they lost a lot of good people during the 2010. There was a lot of fear and anxiety, even in the church spaces. They even said that they were afraid to go to their wards, and mostly not because of outward negative comments. A lot of it is subtle, mm. and in one case, I know that there was... Um, assigned for 
Pierce or Arpaio, I couldn't remember which one. And the signs were inside the, the church building. And Latino members, when they would show up for their services there, because they share buildings, they felt very uncomfortable with those signs there. And, and one Latina, a woman in particular, addressed it with her faith leaders and said, we need to take those out. That's not okay. We should not have those here mm. inside the space. This is not a space for politics. And so I think it's, yes, there is politics, but I think like with any faith, it's about how certain individuals bring it in and weave it into their faith practices and how other individuals really don't want it there, that they just want to be able to worship and not have to confront antagonism and political rhetoric. Mm. All right. Suhey Vega, Director of Community Collaborative Initiatives at ASU, as well as an associate professor in the School of Social Transformation there. Suhey, thank you for coming on. Thank you for your time and your expertise. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was lovely talking to you. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News. The Biden administration says it's still not sure whether to appeal a court-mandated end to Title 42. The pandemic-era protocol blocks asylum at the border on the basis of public health and is expected to sunset December 21st. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. In November, a federal court in D.C. sided with the ACLU, which argued Title 42 was being used as an immigration enforcement tool rather than a way to safeguard public health. Fifteen states, including Arizona, filed suit asking to intervene in the case following that decision. They argue ending Title 42 will harm their states. Stephen Kang with the ACLU says his organization is arguing the states shouldn't be allowed into the case. They relied a lot on sort of very generalized evidence about the alleged costs of non-citizens to their state budget, but they have haven't really shown any connection between the end of Title 42 and any increase in costs or burdens that the states will experience. In its filing, the administration said it also opposes the state's motion to intervene, but it's still weighing whether it will heal the order itself. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. In science news, the average age of menopause is 51. But perimenopause is that chapter when a person's body starts transitioning to menopause. And with it can come physical and emotional symptoms that can last for years. As Kathy Ritchie tells us, some women are looking to cannabis to treat those symptoms. So it, it started with the hot flashes, and then I started have my anxiety really just started to spike. Sandra Guadarrama Beaumont was in her late 40s when she began experiencing those very common perimenopausal symptoms. And then from all of that, of course, came the sleep problems. So, you know, like I said, I'm walking around like this testy human volcano. Guadarrama Beaumont talked to her longtime gynecologist, who recommended over-the-counter products. I mean, it did help with a little bit of the side effects, but nothing really significant. She eventually started researching cannabis. Turns out she's not alone. Steph Swergel is a co-founder of Revelry Cannabis. We're definitely seeing more people come to us, and oftentimes, unfortunately, it's because they're just so desperate. A 2022 survey in the journal Menopause concluded that many individuals are using medical cannabis to help treat symptoms like sleep disturbances and anxiety. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in education news. The largest university in Mexico and Latin America has entered into an agreement with a major publisher of open access science and medical journals. Nicholas Gerbis has more. Open access journals like those published by the Public Library of Science, or PLOS, grew in response to exorbitant journal publishing fees and from a desire to make research accessible to the public who often funds it. 
But such journals still charge hundreds to thousands of dollars per paper, too expensive for many research budgets, and PLOS journals are among the priciest. The agreement between PLOS and the Venerable National Autonomous University of Mexico, or UNAM, will establish a flat fee that will shift publishing costs from researchers to the university, streamline management and overhead, and expand readership for UNAM's research. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.